If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you're losing. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting AMERICA to 31996. That's AMERICA to 31996. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in Washington, D.C. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the unsurprisingly overt bigotry involved in this presidential campaign cycle. I'm Annie Lowry, contributing editor at New York Magazine, and with me here in Washington is Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, as Alex would say. (laughs) And joining us from New York is Mike Pesca, host of the GIST podcast. Thank you for joining us, Mike. It is the gist for America, too. That's the implied the gist. subtitle. It's every time I look at that, I want to say the gist. The gist? Me, too. <laughs> it's like the gif, gif. Yeah. It's, it's exactly right. We, it's oh, like right. gif and gist. Yeah, no, that's right. And, it's and very divisive because half of its listeners call it the gist, and the other half insist it's the gist. Yeah, superciliously saying, actually. You should, yeah, just, call exactly. it the, you should just call it the jizz. <laughs> oh, man. Getting right into it this week. Sorry. Just... On today's X-rated show, Donald Trump keeps on doing what he's doing, provoking outrage, saying ridiculous and racist crap, and then polling pretty well. Next, Louisiana has a Democratic governor, John Bell Edwards. He's beaten David Vitter. Is this a fluke? Does it mean that Democrats are going to retake the South? Finally, a little segment we like to call If I Were in Charge, which maybe this week we'll do what we are thankful for politically. All right. First segment. You cannot keep Donald Trump down. He literally, there's nothing that he can say, nothing he can say, it seems, that will actually pull his poll numbers down significantly. So he is keeping his trump momentum going by proposing a tracking database for Muslims, claiming that people were cheering in New Jersey when the Twin Towers fell on 9-11, there being a large Arab-American population in New Jersey, saying that maybe he should have been roughed up in reference to a black protester at one of his rallies being assaulted. None of this seems to be sticking to the Teflon Donald, with CBS polls in Iowa and New Hampshire among likely GOP primary voters showing him ahead. All right, this is a fun game. Mark, can you think of something that he could say that would result in his poll numbers going down? Hmm. Mike, same question to you. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look at, I mean, I guess maybe, what, what did Ben Carson say? I mean, that seemed to work for him. Um, he said uh, he tried to stab his, what, his mother? Was it a childhood friend? I think he said childhood China was the second smallest country in South America. Oh, man. Yeah, he did. Um, <laughs> That's a good so one. There was a, no, I mean, I think, I, I think if he were to be found, you know, just linked to one of the anathema of the Republican base right now, I mean, like, if he were seen to be, like, a Muslim sympathizer rather than a yeah. you know, anti-Muslim bigot, I mean, that would be one thing. I mean, if he were, you know, I guess if he came out as gay, that would probably hurt him in the Republican base. That would I be, think, oh, my goodness. The media would actually just, like, explode. The media would explode, but, I mean, the Republican base would explode, too. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, none of these things are hurting him because you have to, you know, like the reservoir of population for him right now is is very much you know, frankly, bigoted. I yeah. mean, I, I hate to say it, but I mean, 45, 50 percent of the Republican 
you know, Republican primary voters believe that, that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country. I right. mean, this is, these are Trump's people, and that's the Republican Party, and I think that's the actual story right. here. I mean, But he's, it seems like he's growing that base, Mike, right? Like, this is not really speaking to a small population. It's speaking to a growing one, which I think is, like, kind of uncomfortable. Well, let's take away some of the loaded phrases, like bigoted. Um, I do think that there's a lot of ignorance and that there's a lot of fear. But, you know, Jamel Bowie wrote a really good piece, which is something that I've been noticing for a while, which is why I think it was a really good piece, that the stuff that Trump actually believes, minus how he says it, minus his presentation style, which is good, he's great at attracting attention, is right in line with where the Republican Party voter is. And, in fact, it's much more in line if you stripped away all the personality and say, here's what Jeb Bush believes on immigration. Here's what Trump believes. I want the Trump plan, most Republican voters will say. And since there are a bunch of other Republicans who pretty much share his policy positions, but since he gets so much attention, they're paying a lot of attention to him. I will say one thing. So you listed three things. I don't know much. I mean, I saw the uh, footage of the protester. I I, I can't weigh in on that. He's totally wrong about the discredited reports of thousands of Arabs cheering the fall of the Twin Towers. But I do think, if I'm going to be the kind of person who stands up for, say, Barack Obama and gets really upset when Fox News tries to characterize his uh, a word in his uh, speech about ISIS, right? He called mm-hmm. it a setback. But the whole sentence was, "It's a there are going to be successes, there are going to be setbacks. This was a horrific and terrible setback, which is a fine thing to say. So if I'm going to say, come on, be accurate, you know, Trump never actually said those things about registering Muslims. It was suggested by a reporter. He didn't disagree with them, but there were rope lines. There was noise. All the stuff he ever said was, it's weird. He says stuff really forcefully and seemingly bigoted, but it's like, we should spy on mosques if they have terrorists within them. Well, we do, right? Or we should register refugees. Well, we do. So he's not actually saying those part of it. He wasn't saying anything bigoted. Yeah. I I mean, it seems to me that some of this is like crossed a certain line, right? Like, you know, there's all the, you know, the things about bringing back waterboarding. And he's actually repeatedly at this point said that he thinks that like registries of Muslims, not of refugees, registries of Muslims would be a good thing. I don't know. This stuff seems pretty clearly racist to me. (laughs) And also like, you know, non-constitutional. And I mean, maybe it isn't actually that far from what a lot of people think. Think policy wise, a lot of Republicans but, think policy. A lot of the yeah. Republican base thinks policy wise. Right. They yeah. contain multitudes, by the way, about the whole Constitution thing. They do. Yeah, and, and to add to that, there was also that tweet, that inaccurate tweet about statistics. Oh with, my uh, God! Yeah. Yeah. How many? How many blacks are killed by blacks? But it's more like, yes, it's racist, but it's of the kind of uncareful, pass along some internet meme that's not accurate type I, racism. Yeah, People but he's running shit. for president. He's yeah, running. I, for, I mean, you know, the, the, the standard. The, the the standard is. I mean, what's depressing about this is twofold. One. Where the Republican base really is. Yeah. I mean, I think there has not been a candidate, you know, certainly that I can remember, that has you know, a successful candidate that has laid bare exactly where the base is with the kind of sort of thrilling eloquence that Trump does, you know, within the party. Now, what's depressing about that is if if you are a somewhat middle of the road American. Democrat, moderate Republican, if they even exist anymore, is you say, okay, this is one of our two major parties, and this is where that party is, okay? Now, part of it is skewed. I mean, I, I will I will take your point, Mike, about 
you know the the response to the question about the registering. I mean, I think you mm-hmm. know that's that, that that's a that's a debate worth having, as we say in politics, right? Um, however, I mean, I, I think that if this is in fact the reckoning of what the Republican Party is, they are really marginalizing themselves. I mean, they're getting all the attention now, but I mean, I think the the reality of where the Republican Party is or at least where this extreme is, which can be given greater definition in a big field when one celebrity candidate can coalesce all of the attention, you know, to that point of view, you know, is something that's going to come out of this election. And, you know, I think Hillary Clinton will annihilate Donald Trump in a general election if this, if he is aligned with these views, because these are not swing voters. These are not middle-of-the-road voters. These are not where the vast majority of Americans are. It might be yeah. where a significant block of Republicans are, I mean, enough in a big field to win you the nomination. Right. And it was, you know, six months ago or a year ago when we were talking about immigration as an issue, right? Like the migrant population, the refugee population is kind of an unusual population. And I don't think that it necessarily redounds on like the broader conversation. But still, you started to hear a bunch of candidates say things. And Donald Trump is one of them. Like, we need giant fences. We have people streaming in across the borders. You know, Donald Trump basically made it sound like there are people coming. These migrants are coming from Mexico and like thousands of them are showing up. It's it's true that there are some who have made it, but but the notion that there's thousands, you know, since since 2012, I think the United States has accepted and resettled 2,000 Syrian migrants, mm-hmm. which is just 2, like 200. I've heard. Yeah. Oh, only 200. One way or another, it's like a handful. Yeah. It's like not yeah. that many people whatsoever. out of four million displaced. Yeah, so. exactly. And and the, so therefore, the best way that a terrorist aspirant would want to infiltrate is to go through this 18 month to 24 month process. Yeah, exactly. Rather than just come here on a tourist visa. Right, yeah. right, right. I'm interested to see how this affects the larger issue where they had had this immigration policy. They were trying to reckon with it, right? Like trying to make an immigration policy, or at least some people in the party were, that was going to be appealing to uh, the many Hispanic Americans, people with roots in Latin America or in Mexico. It'll be interesting to see if there's any actual you know, effect of one on the other. I'm not sure yet. I don't think that there's been... Again, this issue seems kind of sui generis, but I'm not really sure. But I think that the uh, Republican immigration goals or, you know, the moderate Republican, maybe you can even call the mainstream of elected Republicans in in national government, their goals are just out of line with what the base is, with what the Republicans want. And the only way, you know, I I think conventional wisdom was right in the in the primary election. You act tough, but not so tough that you don't paint yourself in a corner where you can't win back some votes in the general. And I think that's now all but impossible because we all agree or I think we all agree that Trump won't win. But whereas push the Republicans, you got to you kind of got to outdo him on this machismo when it comes to illegal immigration, because all the other Republicans have been pushed to where Trump pushed them. I don't know. Any of them have any chance to act as moderates in a general election, except if your name is well, except if your name is Cruz or Rubio, just by dint of your heritage, maybe people not paying attention will give you a little credit. But it also bears noting that you want to talk about migration. Pew just came out with a study last week. There's been negative net migration. Migration, illegal migration from Mexico over the, over the last decade. Yeah. So this is a problem that's not actually a problem. That's kind of amazing, right? Mm. Like over the last decade. And granted, you have like the recession and everything else going on there. But I bet that's like one of those facts that you ask your average American or like 10 Americans on the street, like zero will say that that's true. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of which, Cruz and Rubio, they've kind of been on these slow, steady ascents while Trump has obviously been sucking up, they've basically been taking taking voters away from the other candidates, right? The kind of like zero-sum re-sorting has started to happen. So do we think that, that them taking a more prominent role in this and it 
finally coming down to like Rubio Trump or Cruz Trump is like around the corner. Maybe. I mean, part of this is I think Carson is is definitely taking a bit of a dive. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a free it's falling fall, apart. But, yeah. it, you know, he certainly has had a bad couple of weeks. So Rubio and probably even more so Cruz, if you look at the Iowa polls, are more seen as a sensible non-Trump alternative who is outsider-ish. Again, that's conventional wisdom. I mean, what's been interesting is that absolutely no one, you know, in the quasi, you know, establishment, even moderate, if you would say, you know, part of this field, whether it's Christie or Kasich or Bush, has gotten any traction at all. In fact, yeah. they, they just sort of keep swimming around in basic irrelevancy at this point. So, you know, that could change. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, but I don't know who else would have the moment. I mean, I, I think what would, I mean, what you might see in the next debate is, you know, either someone like Jeb or even Christie, if he, if he gets on the stage, sort of preparing a kind of speech that you can, like, just a sort of, what the hell is this party thinking? This yeah. is the future of the party. Right. We can't, I mean, just, it's it's both anti-Trump, it's both what are we doing, people, it's just sort of kind of a last gasp appeal to, you know, middle of the road relevancy, not to mention, you know, their own viability yeah. that, I, I mean, I think, I imagine they're being thought about right now. I mean, that's yeah. just a guess, but I still don't think it would do anything because they haven't really moved, haven't moved the needle in yeah. any of the debate. Yeah, I don't see that there's been any appeal of any of the other so-called moderate or uh, establishment candidates other than Rubio. And why should there be? All the other ones have huge knocks against them. I don't know that Kasich does, but he just hasn't been able to catch fire. So if you're going to go that route, and it doesn't seem like the party really wants to no. go that they route, no inclination but, right? But maybe the elders will force it upon them. Maybe the establishment will force. They're, they're not. You, I, can you see a universe where they allow no. Trump to get through? No, well, yes, yes, they can because the elders and the establishment have absolutely no power in this party. Yeah, they can't do anything. I mean, they've right? proven this over and over and over again. I mean, you know, Reince Priebus goes like, you know, just begging Donald Trump to sign a loyalty pledge, and then over the weekend, I mean. Trump was like sort of flirting with the idea of a third party again. I mean, like no one can do anything. I mean, this well, is just nothing. I, I, well, I think a guy named Reince, by definition, can never be considered an elder. <laughs> that is but true. I just I'm thinking finagling with delegates when it a- actually gets at the yeah. count, or forcing everyone but one establishment candidate out, or something of that ilk. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, the delegates. I mean, are largely bound by percentage of the vote, and I mean, unless a lot of people drop out before the voting starts. I mean, it just doesn't look like – I mean, in a way, they have power now. Um, they had power in setting the rules, all of which backfired. And, I mean, yes, at the end, if there are, like – if it's a close race and, like, certain, you know, delegates are, are at large, they can actually weigh in. But, I mean, it's just, this is just not – I mean, if this is – this race has shown the incredible impotence of, of, you know, whatever sort of governing body there is within the party. Yeah. Entropy increases in Indeed, the universe. man. Endlessly. All right. We need to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back. From appointments with clients, meetings, errands, unless you're chained to your desk all day, then you're one of the 60 million Americans who drives for work. And you're either spending too much time tracking every mile, or you're guesstimating and end up losing money. Even then, your estimate could be as much as 20% less than what you could be claiming. Mile IQ is the solution you've been looking for. Mile IQ is the number one mileage tracker app, and is trusted by hundreds of thousands of Americans. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. MileIQ is easy to use and keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. If you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. 
In fact, the average MileIQ user logs $547 a month in drives. MileIQ does all the work, letting you focus on what's important. That's why they've got a five-star rating in both the Google Play and iTunes app stores. So stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money you could be claiming. Try MileIQ for free today by texting AMERICA to 31996. That's America to 31996. We're back, and we are turning to the Deep South, to Louisiana. Louisiana has long been a predictable base of support for the GOP, but now it has a Democratic governor-elect, John Bell Edwards, not (laughs) John Edwards, poor guy, who beat out Senator David Vitter, he of the old D.C. Madam scandal, which started all the way back in 2007. Yeah, it's so quaint. That has been, oh my goodness, it's a long time. It's 2015, memories are short or long in this case. Mike, is this a fluke? I think it's definitely a fluke for a few reasons. One, Vitter was extremely unpopular. Yeah, I mean, Vitter was like a catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. And two, (laughs) Bobby Jindal is extremely unpopular. We know this on a national level, but his favorability ratings in the state are pretty much what Obama's favorability ratings in the state. So Vitter's attempt to link John Bell Edwards, and my God, is that guy thanking God for his middle name at this point in his (laughs) political career. Yeah, seriously. Is he using the middle name because of, like, before John Edwards was, like, a big, you know, infamous person like right. before he was famous was he just John Edwards I mean well, what, I don't know the, has he ever made like, is, some jokes well, right John, like Mike, he's like you know like oh I, I have a $40 haircut not a $400 one right. I don't know. Mike, Mike you tell us <laughs> The story is that growing up, he was always John Bell. Uh-huh. I don't know, a John Boy thing. But then when he went to West Point, he was John Edwards. There wasn't the stink on the John Edwards right. name at yeah. that point. And then his uh, future wife called asking for John Bell, and no one knew who that was. And then all of a sudden, people put two and two together, and they realized John Bell Edwards was our John Bell Edwards. Nothing to do with psychic John Edwards. Hmm. Or is it John Edwards? Who is the psychic? Is John Edwards the psychic? John, I would know this if I were John a psychic. Edward is, I think, the psychic. I mean, John Edwards' girlfriend sure. is the psychic, right? No, no, she was. Well, she was big oh, into like yeah. new agey stuff. Yeah, she was like she was like into chakras. And oh stuff. yeah, Riel yeah, Riel Hunter. Yeah, oh, Riel man. Hunter. <laughs> more <laughs> and more blasts from the steamy past. She was real a real piece of work. <laughs> um, it's interesting because the Vitter and the John Edwards like sort of implosions happened around the same time, and they both yeah. feel like ancient history. And yet, you know, all ancient history and all sexual peccadilloes are resonant in Louisiana at all times. <laughs> I always I thought think that Faulkner wrote that, right? Probably. <laughs> yeah. Either I always thought that Riel Hunter did, although she did bad things for the campaign, she really hurt the field of webisodes. She was hired to yeah, do webisodes man. for. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's like it was impossible to get hired. I mean, unless you were willing to sleep with a candidate I mean, afterwards. Right. So, I mean, yeah. it was really, really, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if they're still together. Does anyone know this? I hope so. We really need to do some investigative reporting. Wow. So, st- so going back to the why real this story. W- yeah, no. So, all right. Momentarily returning to the issue at hand. This, why yeah. this might not have any implication beyond Louisiana. Do you really think a lot of pro-life Democrats are going to be swept into office? He's a very Louisiana candidate running against a guy who is very much loath in this red southern state, but yeah. also heavily Catholic. So he's yep. pro-guns. He had to be. He was this West Point. He was this great West Point graduate. I don't know. I just think it was a confluence of things you're not going to be able to replicate elsewhere. Right. Right. I tend to agree with you. And also, I mean, yeah, I think that it spoke to certain, like, weirdnesses about Louisiana, even in comparison to the states around it, or, you know, unusual facets. But that's it. It does seem that this could have some pretty significant policy implications, especially if the state ends up taking the Medicaid expansion, which would be 
real good for a lot of Louisianans. It is a state that is heavily poor, that is heavily uninsured, and it looks like that might happen now. Even as you have, very interestingly, these red these red governors in the South, you know, kind of digging their heels in and saying that they're going to um, ratchet things back. So like Arkansas, right? It looks like that right. Medicaid expansion might go backwards, though nobody's sure yet. So yeah, I mean, it could have policy implications that perhaps could change the politics down the road. Yeah, either that or other Democratic candidates will start taking the middle name Bell. Yeah. Right? Like, you know... <laughs> Just like I mean, that could just be like the magic bullet. Just Hillary Bell Clinton. Hillary Bell Clinton. Yeah, her name will sweep Disney princesses into office. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it is a Snow White Republican base down there. (laughs) Sorry. Terrible. I'm really good. It is. It is like pretty weird that you have a Democratic governor of Louisiana and like a Republican governor in a whole lot of really right. blue states. I, I mean, I think the larger... I mean, I think it, it would be premature and wrong to sort of see this as any kind of trend line or, yeah. or you, know, it, you know, harbinger of where the South is these days. But the question of how, you know, in this age of Trump, if you were going to give this, you know, anoint this an age of Trump, is he and is that sort of line of rhetoric going to pull the Republican um, Party, you know, is it going to cost them seats at a statewide level? I mean, I think a lot of us will agree or would agree that it's going to make it much harder to win a national election. You know, they're probably going to be safe in a lot of congressional elections because, you know, they're just safe districts and they're gerrymandered and all that. But, I mean, will there be states that actually sort of swing, you know, against Republicans because they, you know, because, because Trump has sort of lost them that part of you know, the center in so much as there is any. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think we'll sort of see that. I tend to think that that could happen, but I think a real thing going on is Louisiana is that Jindal is such a bad governor, and he seems bad in a way particularly ill-suited to Louisiana. He was a real he was a real believer in austerity, and he mm-hmm. would do nothing to raise taxes. And, of course, this is the land of the kingfish. This is the land of a chicken and then some in every pot. And so if Sam Brownback wants to impose that pretty unpopularly in Kansas, that's one thing. But a lot of these states that are pretty poor, that you know have a stated preference for a governor is going to cut budgets, but when it when push really comes to shove, it's a horribly unpopular policy. Right. So I wonder what it says to other governors, all these other governors elected throughout the states with populations that are really hurting. You know, how moderate can you be? How much do you get right. in with the club for growth? How austere of a policy can you actually pursue? It's like that's look at what Kasich's done. You know, you could quibble if he's done a great job, a bad job, if he's been the beneficiary, but he definitely. Uh, governs with more humanity and less doctrinaire and less of a total intransigence than someone like Bobby Jindal did. Right. Right. And it's, you know, there's a really good piece by Alec McGillis, which I think was in the New York Times opinion section. It was kind of like a what's the matter with Kansas type thing about why a lot of these low income white voters are so red when they are so helped by these government programs. Mm. It was a really fascinating look at the psychology and why it might be that these people are, are voting against, in some sense, their economic self-interest. It really helped me in thinking about all of these counties in like Mississippi, Louisiana, West Virginia that have become so red, but at the same time where all of these low-income white voters have become increasingly disengaged. I highly recommend people go look this up. You know what? I'm, I'll, I'm, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go look it up right now. <laughs> yeah, do it. Yeah. It was yeah. too compelling. An offer, yes. No. All right, moving on. The Forgotten Party, the Democrats, the people that ostensibly seem to have their crap together. Or do they? Mark, what do you think of how Feel the Burn has been doing? Feel the Burn. Yeah. Um, I think Feel the Burn. I mean, look, I mean, he's still, he's doing quite well in polls. I mean, New Hampshire is 
very much in play for him. I, I, I do think that Hillary Clinton has been helped very much by the focus on foreign policy yeah, since, totally. since Paris in a big way. I think Bernie Sanders sort of botching, or not botching, but blowing off of the question about Paris in the Democratic debate a few weeks ago or 10 days ago, whenever it was, was pretty emblematic of, of where his mind is not. I mean, this is not a foreign policy you know, appeal. I mean, his base is pure economic populism. But that said, I mean, the, the, one of the beneficiaries in some ways of, of people ignoring the Democratic side because so much focus has been paid to Trump and the Republican side is, I mean, who knows, maybe Bernie's sort of economic populist wing of the party is, in fact, a silent majority. And maybe, mm-hmm. I don't think it'll win him the nomination, but it could cause all kinds of trouble once the voting starts. I mean, right. I think that the real drama of that race will obviously, I mean, this is going to sound obvious, but it will become more apparent in the next few months. But having said that, I think in the big picture, Hillary Clinton, I mean, this is a perfect setup for her because you have a sort of a, a chief opponent who is going to sort of make you kind of come to the base and sort of, you know, help you hone your appeal as a Democratic candidate, but at the same time will make you look more centrist in a general election. And at the same time, you have, you know, a potential opponent or just, you know, the the party that you'll be facing in November going seemingly off the rails. So it's been a great few months for her right now. Yeah, it's funny. I think that the fundamentals. So if she has a strong economy and a somewhat turbulent situation overseas, I think that's just like that's a real sweet spot for her. Right. Because it means that Bernie's kind of economic populist arguments are probably going to have a little bit less penetration if the unemployment rate is like just like if it's like five percent or even lower, like in the four percent and wages are growing. Right. Not that those issues aren't important, but it's just like had he been making those arguments in 2012 when the economy was like in a much worse state than it is right now. You know, I think that they would have gotten a little bit more traction. And similarly, I mean, I, th- I think you're right. I think the fact that there is this like legitimate crisis happening in Europe, our very close partner, and you have this woman who is like, by all accounts, pretty well respected Secretary of State, and who's hawkish for for where she is in the party. I think it, it bodes really well for her, at least in the moment. All right, Mike, what are you making of the fundamentals from New York? I thought that this was the week that Bernie Sanders really showed us that he was only interested in being a one-issue candidate. Yeah, that's because you can't you can't ignore what's going on in the world. He had this speech scheduled. Why I'm a socialist at Georgetown. I watched it via the web. This is a thing you could do. And then I noticed in the press release beforehand, tacked on was why I'm a socialist and also stuff about security. And yes, three quarters of the speech. Why I'm a socialist. And then he gets to the security part, and it's. It, it just displays a lack of willingness to get into specifics and also this tendency to go back. And while it's true, as Santa Ana said, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. But goddamn, is Bernie Sanders sure we're going to know history? So we're going to know Allende. We're going to know Operation Condor. We're going to know how we depose the elected officials of Guatemala and of Iran. What is this tendency? By the way, I do one of these shows which with much nicer people than you guys. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, again, it's I'm okay. taking that. Again, three to one. it back. No, no we're asleep I'm doing, anyway. We don't hear. What I'm you're doing. Saying. I do. I do one of these, a similar <laughs> show to this, with a, a guy who's the guest? not not nearly <laughs> as nice as you, and he's of the Bernie Sanders generation, and he can't stop talking about the lessons of Vietnam. I know it's true, oh, man. but stuff happened before Vietnam that's also true. This tendency of older people, maybe older, very liberal people, of having to lecture us as if we don't know. I don't know. Am I am I being old splained? Am I being mansplained on this 
Oh. Anyway. It just feels really irrelevant, too, it, right? It's so irrelevant. Like, he said that we need to have, like, a NATO that also includes the Arab states and Russia. Wait a minute. So an attack on Russia is now an attack on us? That makes no sense. He didn't have... It was... If you were looking for that, or if you were even just a big Bernie supporter who was looking for him not to embarrass himself on that, I don't think he did it. Yeah, but also, you know, the Republican Party have their old splainers, too. I mean, you yeah. could even argue that their entire message is one big old splain. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Trump sort of bringing out, you know, Eisenhower operation. What was that operation? Uh, the the wetback. The, well, operation wetback. That's yeah. right. I knew it had like a colorful racist slur. Mark, Mark was looking at me as if I remembered it because I was there. No, no, it was like a couple. <laughs> of, no, it was, he said it in the debate, but I mean, like they're sort of bring, you know, just like inter- internment nostalgia and everything. Yeah. I mean, this oh, is. God. So, again, there are many flavors of old splaining. How's that for a sentence? Yeah. At least, in at in, least, in right. today's politics, across the board. At least Bernie is accurate. Like, the Allende thing wasn't good for democracy. I will say this, too. <laughs> I will say this in Bernie's defense. So, Annie, I agree. The sweet spot, not too much foreign policy, the economy doing well. But the economy can't do well enough. So an unemployment rate of 5% is great. But there's no way that it can do well enough to actually address all the stuff that all of Bernie's policy prescriptions, right? It can't restore middle-class wages, and it can't give people a greater sense of hopefulness. I mean, his stuff goes way beyond if the unemployment rate is 4% or 6%. And I do think he has a lot of economic ideas that will push Hillary Clinton in good direction. But that's why I want to conflate everything we're talking about and predict that a Trump nomination against an all-but-certain Hillary Clinton win will allow her to get Elizabeth Warren as a vice presidential candidate which would be the best possible scenario. Oh, that's interesting. So look, like I think that there's actually some interesting stuff going on economically. You're absolutely right. It is simultaneously true that the economy is doing pretty well and is in a pretty good state and that a lot of people aren't feeling it, right? Mm-hmm. If wage growth picked up a lot next year, which maybe it will, you know, that would be good. But we're actually kind of getting to the point that the unemployment rate is not going to fall that much more. It's just not possible, right? Like it's not actually economically advantageous to have like a 2% unemployment rate. There's also some kind of interesting signs that the economy could be slowing down. And who knows, right? Like there's always just you can pick whichever indicators you want. And so I, I was thinking the other day about like if the economy goes south next year, which is possible, even if it's just kind of like scant growth and the unemployment rate ticks up a little bit, I think that's going to make her hugely vulnerable just because it's all of a sudden and that's going to hurt like the perception of the president. Thus far, there hasn't been a compelling economic argument from the Republicans because it's just like it hasn't stuck, right? Like they keep on describing the economy as terrible and as it, and mm-hmm. it isn't. But if it feels like the recovery is kind of falling apart, then obviously, I mean, to state the abundantly obvious, you know, that's going to that's gonna be really hard for her. Well, there was a survey that just came out, a value survey that said that 7 in 10 Americans believe we're in a recession when, in fact, we've been in a 72-month recovery. It yeah. is a lame-ass recovery, but it's a recovery. Yeah. And the, as far as the economists or if we're going to have a recession, 15% of the Wall Street Journal uh, surveyed economists says it's going to happen. So it probably won't happen. Yeah. But I guess my point is our narrow definitions of good economy and bad economy Yeah. Th- you know, they're pretty narrow. And it, the overall salient fact is like it's not good enough for enough people. Right. Going back to Bernie, I think that there's already pretty clear evidence that he dragged her to the left. You know, like insofar this was a one issue candidacy, like he definitely all of her stuff on like, you know, paid leads. She's now talking about a tax credit for caregivers. 
which like, you know, like that's a pretty, that's a policy option that I'm not sure would have been on the table a couple months ago were it not for him. Yeah. How about a tax credit for like podcasters? Yeah, definitely. Like, that's definitely, I think, what we should do. Wait, we're, we're supposed to pay taxes on this shit? Oh, yeah. Pod exactly. for oh, no. America the incredible amounts of needs money. needs to bring out its massive in. lobbying prowess <laughs> we do. to get that. Mike, yeah. you want to be our lobbyist? Alex is normally our lobbyist, but you can be our lobbyist today. Go I'm out and like, buy someone lobbyist. a steak lunch or something. There will be no lobbyists in my administration. <laughs> in fact, there will be no lobby. You'll have to wait in the, uh, we'll just, call it an ante room. Just go right to the elevator. <laughs> the ante- no, right. You're going to have to wait outside. You have to stand yeah. outside. Yeah. All right. To wrap this all up, what are you guys thankful for? Oh, I If am, anything. So this <laughs> is, if we were in charge. No, I'm thankful for many, many, many things. Most of all, for you who Aww. listen to, uh, well, Aww. you, my co-host, Mike, mm-hmm. I included you in that. Mission for compliments. No, I, uh, but certainly our listeners to uh, Podcast for America, our, our great staff, our steering committee. Um, <laughs> but no, most of all, listeners. Listeners, we, we love you, listeners. Uh, keep telling us what you think of the show. And um, I'm also grateful that I'm not traveling this Thanksgiving, which I normally do, but I'm actually traveling Tuesday to Wednesday for work, and I'm hoping that this doesn't, like, fuck up everything. But I will be staying put for five solid days, God willing, and yeah. um, I'm thankful on a very personal level for that. You're going, to, you're going to Iowa, right? Yeah, I'm going to Grinnell, Iowa, because Rubio is doing a town meeting there. Oh. Ta- yeah, it'll be good. Yeah, it's funny about Iowa. <laughs> if I know anything about the demographic of Grinnell, they'll be really receptive. Well, Grinnell is like, it's like a college town, right? Yeah, I know. Grinnell it's is like there. an extremely college. liberal college town. That should be interesting. Yeah. All right, Mike, what are you grateful for? Well, Grinnell, Iowa, rightfully known mm-hmm. as the Heck jewel yes. of the prairie. It's been voted a top 10 coolest small town in America. Is that true? <laughs> That's from the GrinnellChamber.org oh, website, go, man. <laughs> which you. I didn't even have up because you mentioned it. That's mm-hmm. just in my web browser all the, the jewel time. Jewel of the Prairie. It's like, like the Pearl of the Quarter. Remember the, <laughs> that song by Steely Dan? <laughs> I th- it's about I thought like, it was... this woman in New Orleans. I thought it was the third in the series with uh, Danny DeVito and uh, Kathleen be. Turner. Yeah. 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 I'm thankful for podcasts. I love listening to your podcast. Mom and Dad are fighting gave me and my family a ritual, which is we play two lies and a truth. We go around the table, and the kids tell me two lies and a truth. It's gotten my older kid really, really good at lying. And based on two lies and a truth, I am debuting something called Thanks Fibbing which is we give thanks for things that aren't true. And it's a great exercise in creativity. So my oldest son will say, Dad, I'm thankful that you got me a Wii and a PlayStation for Christmas, which of course isn't <laughs> true. I will say I'm thankful for the Jets three championships. If you guys or anyone else want to participate in your tradition of thanks fibbing, I recommend it. Oh, man. Wow. Maybe Donald Trump is thankful for that celebration in Jersey City. <laughs> that <laughs> is it probably helped him in the polls. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I am also thankful for podcasting. I'm thankful for you, listeners. I'm thankful that I'm also not traveling, but we are cooking, which is something that I love to do. We're making Thanksgiving dinner. One of our traditions is that we do do to Thanksgiving. So we watch Tom Hanks movies the morning before while we're cooking. There's so many good ones. I like the ones. I like the ones where he's in space. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm very thankful for the utterly lunatic presidential election that we've had thus far it has been a delight to gab about and horrifying to write about yeah it's true although i I might be like creeping into like more depression over this than enjoyment but maybe i just need the holiday to recharge my yeah you just need some carbs i need some carbs (laughs) i totally need some carbs 
All right, that's it for Podcast for America. Our producer today is Sarah Abdurrahman. Thanks to AC Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show and how grateful you are for us. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. We check it. We read everything that you send us. Please tell your friends about us, too. You can subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show. For Mike Pesca in New York and Mark Leibovich in Washington, I'm Annie Lowry. Thank you, and we'll see you guys next time. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone.